everyone. This is Jason Polanski, creator of Fat Man Rolling, and you are listening to The App Guy. The App Guy podcast, straight from your host, Paul, The App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul, The App Guy. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy podcast. I'm your host. It's Paul Kemp. Uh, I love going around the world. And today I've stopped off in San Francisco, the Bay Area, uh, to talk with a startup founder, a CEO. And uh, he's going to talk us uh, through his, uh, you know, quite uh, dramatic uh, life choice in a way, you know, to start a company. It's always very hard to do. So if you are uh, listening to this as you're driving to work and uh, you're, you know, wondering what it's like, uh, life on the other side, uh, life as a, a startup founder, this is the podcast and episode for you. Definitely stay tuned. Let me stay, uh, let me give an intro to uh, David Brunner. He is the CEO and co-founder, sorry, CEO and founder of Module Q. And, uh, that is at modulequeue.com. Go and check them out. And uh, it's a beautiful website, actually, if you go and check out modulequeue.com. Uh, so, David, uh, welcome to the App Guy podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm right saying you're the founder. No, there's no co-founder. Well, in, in any company, it, it takes a team. But you're correct that I am a sole founder. Yeah, it's not, not often we come across just pure founders, you see. It's often... Uh, that uh, you know, like you have a co-founder, but uh, or perhaps we could talk about a little bit about that uh, later on. But certainly, I'd love to know, you know, about Module Q and what you're trying to do in Module Q. So, what Module Q is trying to do is is turn the enterprise software value proposition upside down by moving the focus from managers and dashboards and top-down analytics to helping individual professionals be more successful. So if you think about traditional enterprise software, it's generally been about managers. We want to put the focus on the people actually doing the work, connecting with your customers. Right. How do you do that? So we think it's really about mobile devices and mobile, social, and big data that is, for the first time, making it possible to have a, a personal device that goes everywhere with you, that's in your hands, that's Wherever you are, it's tracking you. It's got access to all your communication flow. We're, we, we need to take that and leverage it to help you as a professional get your work done. And in order to do that, we need to have a really deep understanding of how to manage privacy uh, because you don't necessarily want all that personal data going straight into your enterprise systems. Uh, we need to have an understanding of habits and habit design because this is is so close to, to you and integrated into your workflow in a way that, for example, your laptop or your desktop was never really that close to your workflow. Uh, and we need to have an understanding of community because people work together. It's a social activity. So many of the listeners of the show, David, are app developers who are doing part-time projects and trying to make money by uh, selling apps on the App Store. You're in the enterprise space. Is it easier to make money in the enterprise space you know i'm just trying to think of anyone who's potentially thinking about going on their own you know whether to target uh, um, you know the uh, app stores and user base or whether to actually go enterprise w what would you say to that uh, my strong advice would be unless there's some personality defect that you have that pulls you inexorably toward the enterprise uh, which i happen to suffer from i would stay away from it 
<laughs> right, okay. <laughs> why why would you stay away from it? Is it just highly competitive or uh, is it hard to, to crack into the, the client base, you know, that you need to grow your I, business? I think it's hard to crack. Yeah, I think it's hard to crack for a number of reasons. Go to market is, uh, is pretty challenging um, because you're, you're having to at some level interface with organizations as well as individuals and, and you need to manage that tension between the app being a, a very personal thing that an individual could download uh, but the organizational interfaces sometimes requiring more buy-in and ultimately really making a lot of money on it is going to require in most cases an enterprise sale. So so that's part of it. The other thing is that that investors are very aware of the challenges in, in the enterprise space and so Raising money is is tough, um, and, and the problems that you're trying to solve uh, tend to be pretty demanding because you're you're going out to, to people that are doing a, a, an ROI calculation on is it worth my time to invest my effort as a professional in learning and using this app? Uh, is it going to help me get the results at the end of the day? Is it going to make a difference for my bottom line, personal and organizational? And so the bar. I think it's pretty high. Yeah, I can imagine it. it is quite difficult. I have been involved in the enterprise space trying to build apps for large companies. And even just trying to get the right person on the phone or uh, getting connected is quite challenging. You have a lot of uh, uh, you know, protection within a company. You know, and you, It's hard to touch these people. And I just wondered if you had any advice, if, if you are going into enterprise, how, how to actually sell uh, your proposition. Yeah, um, I, I think the the most important thing for us has been getting people involved that have deep enterprise expertise. Uh, and so we have a chief revenue officer who has uh, been a, a VP of sales in a number of technology companies that reached out directly to individual professionals within larger organizations. They they weren't selling apps, but it was a similar dynamic of driving individual adoption and at the same time working your way up toward organizational buy-in. Uh, we have a chairman uh, who uh, has been involved in, in taking uh, numerous uh, enterprise software companies to market, and so he has a, um, he, he's a great source of advice uh, for us. Uh, but I think it's it's very difficult to go into the enterprise space without any of that prior expertise. And, and I think I can, uh, I actually say that uh, sort of with uh, direct experience and, and sort of battle scars, because when I started the company, I didn't have any enterprise experience myself. I didn't have any enterprise experience on the team. Uh, and it took me about three years uh, to figure out uh, what the nature of those challenges were and and begin to reach out to the right kind of expertise to uh, build up the team. Because yeah, I'm thinking of uh, the Appster tribe listening to this right now, that they are uh, at that starting point where potentially they're thinking about uh, going into uh, launch their own company, start a company, and uh, maybe they're attracted to uh, the enterprise space. But what I'm learning from you, David, and, and actually I've learned this from other uh, episodes, is that it's the team around you of experts that will help propel your company into that space and uh, give you the the authority and the credibility to to have those conversations and to get the clients and to get the investment. Is that is that fair? It's all about the team. I, I think it's absolutely right, Paul. And so again, you look at our team. Our chairman uh, was the founder of Oracle Japan and an angel investor in Salesforce.com. 
Uh, our advisory board includes John Dillon, who was the first CEO of Salesforce.com. Uh, we have uh, an enterprise veteran CTO, an enterprise veteran CRO, and a uh, an incoming VP of product management with expertise in in designing enterprise um, uh, applications. So uh, I think that has finally made us credible with investors and customers. So anyone listening to this, I mean, that is a commendable like group of people. And they must be frightened by the, the fact that how on earth do you assemble such a great team? Uh, it's really about persistence uh, and networking and having a, a, an idea that people find compelling. Uh, but, you know, I, that has come together over the last year uh, and maybe, a, maybe last 18 months. And I've been at this now full time for four plus years. Uh, so I, I started at the beginning of 2011. Uh, so all along, I was networking as aggressively as I could, and everyone that I could get to make an introduction, I, I'd take those introductions and and then go out and try to try to get the next one and build a relationship, and then get the next layer of introductions and and focus on who can get me closer to the people with the right expertise and networks. Yeah, again, it's all about the networking. And that's one of the reasons I do the podcast is because it gets me uh, networked, you know, given that you're episode 249 now. So uh, it's a great way of uh, meeting people. Uh, what I was, I was going to just slightly change gears because the uh, sure. big inspiration for listening to this show is to try and figure out how you get over the the risk factor of leaving a very nice safe job to start a company, you know, whether it's small, whether it's, you know, a, a lot mid-sized company, how did you overcome the, the, the fear of, of that transition? Perhaps you can talk us through that and give us some advice on, on for, for others listening. Yeah. Uh, the, um, I, I think, you know, one piece of advice is don't be married. So I, I'm now married. <laughs> okay. If I, if I were thinking about making this decision now, I think it would be a much more challenging set of trade-offs for me to consider. Um, when I started the company, I was single, uh, so I had a very low expense base and uh, could live pretty simply and figured that if there was any time that I was going to do something like this in my career, I'd better do it because the the fixed expenses in my life and the... Uh, uh, reasons that I need to avoid risk were only going to multiply. Uh, and then you start thinking about having children and that sort of thing and, and a family and, and it becomes a, a much harder calculus. So I think for me, I had the luxury of making the decision at a time when I had very little to lose. Uh, and you mentioned a stable job. I, I, I did turn, turn down at least or leave one stable job. I used to be a management consultant with the Boston Consulting Group. I left that to go to graduate school. After graduate school, I did have an offer at a top 10 business school uh, to teach but I, or, or to be a, a, a researcher and then presumably to go on to, uh, to teaching. And, and I did turn that down because my feeling was the risk-return trade-off just isn't there. And, and I think at some level, this is where perhaps I'm a, a bit different than some of my colleagues that have made the decisions to stay in academia or stay in consulting is Whatever career you pursue in your life, if you're if you're determined to get to the top of your field and to to really make an impact and, and maybe even change the world, you're going to work really, 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 really hard. Whether you're an academic or a consultant or an engineer, 
And so my feeling was, if whatever I do, I'm going to work really, really, really hard and, and pour my heart and soul into it, I, I want to be doing it in a place where the the best case outcome is really transformational, not just for me, but but even perhaps for the world. And a startup's really about the only place you get that. I did notice, uh, have you been to Stanford in your in your, your history there? Because uh, I, is, there must be something with regards to Stanford. A lot of these startup founders I speak to have uh, that university on their, um, you know, their their history. Yes. So I was born and raised in Silicon Valley. My father was involved in a sequence of medical device startups. Uh, and then I ended up going to, to college almost in my backyard at, at Stanford. And I think the thing that is unique about Silicon Valley and Stanford is that you've got so many people who have done this successfully around you. And so on the one hand, it seems like an impossible goal to go out and create a company that's going to to grow into a, a massive enterprise employing tens of thousands of people. On the other hand, you've got these people literally all around you and they're on panels and you uh, sometimes meet them or you're friends of friends with them or you go to school with someone who's whose dad uh, sold his company for $50 million. And so it's it makes it feel, even if it is extremely difficult to do, it makes it feel like it's possible. There you go. It, it, uh, it's very inspirational hearing you talk because I'm, I'm guessing what happened is that you had this very compelling uh, feeling to, to, to jump in and to start. And in fact, it probably didn't feel as risky because... Uh, you're surrounded by similar uh, peer groups that uh, were, were doing the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And you see the people that failed and what happened to them. And what happened to them is either they did again and they were successful or they go and work for Google or Facebook or yeah, they go and work for a venture capital firm. So yeah, you, it's failure isn't the end of the world. It's it's just you, you've, it's an, this is an opportunity to learn. So I sort of think of my, career up to this point as being going out and learning as a management consultant, going out and learning as a doctoral candidate, and then going out and learning as an entrepreneur. And I'm not sure what comes next, but I'll, I'll continue this one for as long as I can. <laughs> well, there's two things we need to do before we say goodbye, David. One is that if you think about uh, the last few weeks or months of uh, working and, and all the things that you're doing, can you think about a time where you, you, you've had a frustration with what you, you're doing, a particular pain point? Uh, because we've learned from this show that those pain points lead to potential ideas that could, that could be solved through a mobile solution. So, so I wondered if uh, you, could, you could talk about a particular frustration uh, that you've experienced over the last few months. So I, I think one that, that comes up a lot is um, is finding things. Uh, which you know, I've got I've got all these documents and all these emails and uh, meeting appointments and all these things scattered across devices and applications, and it's it's often really hard to just find what I'm looking for. Um, so that's that's maybe one set of things. Another is um, at the from sort of a, a manager manager's perspective, just the friction that a lot of these online systems introduce. So when I'm doing things with, uh, for example, QuickBooks, it's QuickBooks Online is a great piece of software. Um, same with Expensify, uh, but um, I, I find it challenging to 
orchestrate all of the activities in them because they're, I have to go into each of those different worlds for it. Yeah, almost as well. I was thinking as we work, each of us have our own way of uh, collating the information and storing it. And we have our own file systems and we create new folders and all this sort of stuff. And then when we come to the point where we think, oh, we should actually hand off that task, it becomes quite uh, frustrating because you think, oh, I just have to explain, you know, where to go and how to do it. And it takes more time. I might as well go and do it myself, you know. And if there was some way of uh, uh, maybe re recording certain actions uh, that you take to, you know, when you're setting up things. And I, I just think there's definitely room for like a PA personal assistant type of uh, application that, that's a bit a bit easier to use and to find stuff um so or maybe yeah, some yeah. i think and, and, and with voice queries and I, one of the things that i think has been uh, at this point maybe underutilized a little bit is uh, the ability to use voice recognition to to do queries and so forth on the mobile so um you know if i could find the relevant file and have it emailed to me for example just by by ref, by doing a a voice-driven search now now you're talking that is absolutely what we need there you go anyway everyone listening this is what we need and i don't know how you're going to do it you need to figure out integration with the google voice or uh, siri or whatever but i would love just to you know not even pick up my phone have it on um you know plugged in and just say hey siri could you find that file that is named uh xyz and send it to joe you know without even touching a piece of uh, equipment yeah, well, in there you've gotten to exactly the kind of thing that you expect from an intelligent human assistant. Uh, exactly. There you go. Actually, if you think about it, um, there's an idea. Take take whatever we're used to uh, getting, having humans do, you know, around us, like administration assistants, and uh, and and try to replicate some of those um, tasks, you know, but but more intelligently. Yeah, that's. Uh, well, I think. Well, that, that leads to an interesting observation that we have about this whole, this whole space, which is the importance of what one might call habit design or um, understanding the way that, that people are engaging with the device at a very sort of fine-grained level, because the reality is the human assistant is actually doing a whole lot of different things for you. And some of those things, there's a lot of value in, in automating. Some of it, there may be very little value in automating. Some of it may be really easy to support with an app. Some of it may be really hard. Accessing, you know, pulling the right file, I think, is a really interesting example. Uh, scheduling meetings comes up a lot, but I would not encourage anyone to do a, a meeting scheduling app because that turns out to, to be a really hard problem with a lot of sort of social and political implications. But I think if you start going out and looking at uh, the the kinds of things that people are doing in the course of their work and you try to break it down into the little behaviors and then pick out one of them that you want to focus on that you can make really sing. Uh, in a way, I think that's what Evernote did uh, and what has made them so successful is they realized just keeping track of the random notes you want to write down is actually really important and it's not handled that well by anybody because nobody's really focused in on it and tried to figure out how to do it perfectly. 
Yeah, actually, how how do you use Evernote? Have you got any insider tips, power user notes for us? Because I've started, you know, forwarding a lot of stuff uh, via email to Evernote and and then uh, changing the subject line so that it goes into particular folders and then having reminders come up. And it's it's been very effective the way I've been using Evernote. But do you have any tips for us? Uh, so I'm I'm not a power user, but I use Evernote for my to-do lists, which are are pretty formidable. Uh, and one of the things that's been interesting to me is the realization that all the to-do apps, including the new Google Qs, uh, really don't work for me because they don't give me the flexibility to, to create these little cues for myself about how my lists are organized. Some of them are organized around headers of grouped by people, so I have agendas for each person on my team so that I'll bring up the right things in them in meetings with them. Uh, some of them are uh, organized around dates and the things that I have to do by specific dates. Uh, and so I think what's interesting there is that there's there's actually a part of this uh, sort of personal management that I think Evernote isn't really capturing because I don't think they've focused in as tightly as they could on the different habits. And, and you described a really interesting one of forwarding the emails in. That's one that I don't happen to use, but it's actually something we support in our app because we recognize that a lot of leads that a field salesperson is is going after and our initial target audience is field salespeople are coming through their inbox, but you need to get that into a place where you can manage it. And it turns out Evernote's a really lousy place for that because it's not organized around your opportunities. Oh, I see. Okay. So uh, there you go. That's uh, I think that we've kind of fleshed that idea out and we touched on some of the uh, aspects of your service as well. Uh, the the final thing is this is the App Guide podcast. We love talking about apps. And so uh, I'm guessing you've got your your smartphone pretty close to you. I wondered if you could pick it I up do. and <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very personal devices. Or, uh, mm-hmm. I wondered if you had one or two apps that you tend to use in your business or personal life that you think would be good recommendations for us. So the, the apps that I use, uh, and they're, they're probably ones that many of your listeners are familiar with, but I use Waze, uh, and I use it especially, you know, it's, it gives you directions when you're driving to get you on the shortest route with the least traffic, and sometimes it'll take you all or all through all these routes, that roads that you didn't even know existed uh, to get around a traffic jam, uh, and I used it earlier this afternoon to make sure I was going to be on time for, uh, for this uh, interview. Um, so I use Waze, I of course use Uber, I also use msecure to, to manage my password collection. Right. Um, uh, just, on, uh, just on Waze then, I, I, I know that uh, I used to be a very big user of Waze and I haven't used it for a while, but uh, there used to be a, an easy way of getting to the uh, roots and you could quite easily see that the blockages on there. I didn't realize that they're automatically then recalculating any particular uh, traffic jams or slow moving traffic without you having to go in and look uh, manually for that. That's why it's such a great app. So especially if you live in a place like San Francisco where the traffic is terrible and the the difference of uh, choosing uh, 4th Street and 6th Street can can make the difference between whether you're at your meeting on time or not, it's it's really helpful. That's a a wonderful tip. So uh, for Everyone who's uh, listening to this driving and struggling to uh, write down these notes, uh, just go to theappguy.co and search out uh, episode 249 with uh, David and you'll see links uh, to these 
these uh, apps that you were mentioning. Uh, and David, I'd love to know uh, how, how best the audience can get in touch and connect with you. Well, if they're interested in uh, Module Q, uh, you can come to our website and there's a, a link to uh, request access to our private beta. Uh, and you can also uh, find my LinkedIn profile on our About page. Uh, and uh, uh, on my LinkedIn profile, uh, if, you, if you want to reach out to me personally, there's a, there's a way to do that too. Great, David. What an inspirational journey. Do you feel like we've touched everything on Module Q and, uh, you know, your journey so far? Is there anything pertinent we may have missed out? Uh, well, there's, uh, you know, I, I could talk about Module Q and my journey up to this point for certainly uh, <laughs> hours, if not days. So, so there's, there's, uh, there, there's lots, lots of territory there. But I think the one thing that I, I would just mention is uh, that I think there's a lot of power in really getting inside a problem, and, and that's that's why I spent five years in in uh, uh, my doctoral program at Harvard studying how workers in organizations use technology to facilitate their workflows. Because once you get in deep enough, gradually you begin to see the opportunities uh, and the ways that you can make it easier. And I think that applies to uh, consumer apps uh, as much as, if not more, uh, than enterprise apps. Well, I'll make sure that all links to uh, your company and to, to your LinkedIn profile are on the show notes. So again, to re reiterate, people just go to theappguy.co and this is episode 249. David, thanks very much for being such an inspirational guest and certainly helping guide us through the potential life choices that we have and, uh, you know, trying to replicate some part of the journey that you've had to be successful. So, so I really appreciate your time and uh, all, the, all the best with uh, Module Q and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, it's a pleasure.